Well, it's my privilege to say good morning, world champions. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> I know we all feel that it's just because of us, just because of me, that the Springboks won yesterday. Isn't it fantastic to be part of that? I was really close to wearing a Springbok shirt this morning, but then I felt I had to show compassion to the English people. And uh, my English friends and everybody are not seem like I'm rubbing it in. But uh, what a fantastic day and what a fantastic time in our nation. And uh, I, wonder, I want us to just in this moment take a time and just can we pray? Because I believe that this, I don't know if God had anything to do with us winning yesterday or, you know, I think it had something to do with the rain that fell over the weekend. Can we just say thank you to the Lord for that? But... But I do want to pray that Stronger Together will really be, uh, will stay with us. And that we will realize that we can only overcome our challenges when we come together. And uh, so can I pray for that? And let's just ask the Lord. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for just using sport as a time to give such a positive injection and um, hope into our nation again. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for your faithfulness in so many areas. And Lord, I want to pray that this idea of stronger together that we saw on the field yesterday, that the only way we can win is if we bring all our differences and all our different experiences and bring it together, it makes us stronger. And I pray that that same heart would be in us, Lord, as we deal with the challenges in our nation, that we would be stronger together, Father, that we will not allow the enemy to divide us, that we will not let our problems come between us, Lord, but that we would unite and stand together to solve the problems that we have in you. And we pray for that. We pray for our nation. We pray, we put our faith and our hope in you that you will save us and bring us to the plans that you have for us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I want to take you to James 2 this morning as we are now moving over to James 2. We've done James 1 and uh, we're going to be reading through James 2 and um, Ewan just said to me, my youngest son, as he, he heard the sermon already at the South Church, and as Debbie was sharing just her testimony, he said, he leant over to me and said, that's a bit scary because he knows what I'm about to say. So it's fantastic, but you're in for a talk this morning in terms of what I feel the Spirit of God is saying. So strap in and let's tackle James 2 together in our series of Arise, Shine. And uh, I think Arise, Shine was prophetically about the Springboks also, so... Um, it had something to do with that. Let's read just James 2, verse 1 to 4, and then I'm going to jump in and share with you what I believe the Lord is saying to us through this book of James. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in, a glory, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? A really practical, cutting to the chase portion of Scripture from James, much like he did last week. 
when I spoke about uh, get rid of all moral filth, James doesn't mince words. He doesn't take the scenic route. He doesn't come at this from a nice place or try and just, you know, mollycoddle the, the Christian believers at that time. He cuts right to the point, and he says this. He asks them this question. My dear brothers and sisters, remember again, he's writing to believers, not unbelievers, Christian people, people that have professed to be believers in the Lord Jesus and in the Word of God. He says to them, how can you as believers claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus if you show if you have favor, if you favor some people over others. He's really saying to them, you proclaim to have faith, but the things that you are doing are making me doubt that you really have faith. He's speaking discernment and judgment in a sense in that space. We're saying your, your proclamation of faith is not matching with your actions. That which you are doing are bringing your faith into disrepute is, is causing me to ask legitimate questions about do you really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus if I see you do these things, if you favor some people over others. Discrimination is a reality of the world we live in. It's not a new reality. It's been around since the beginning of time. One of the translations says discrimination, or later on it will talk about discrimination in verse 4. Well, doesn't this discrimination, discrimination, how many of you know we live in a world that struggles with discrimination? As South Africans, we probably know this better than many others. We are trusting the Lord. We are working hard as a nation to rise up and come out of a time of discrimination of legalized discrimination. We are doing our level best as a nation to not discriminate, to not show favor. The word favoritism or favor here is the word prosopolepsia in the Greek. Sounds like a disease, doesn't it? He's saying to these Christians, you are struggling from prosopolepsia. It's an endemic, it's, it's something that is, that is, that is rife in the world, prosopolepsia, discrimination. The, literally, the word means, in, in, this, in, in the way he uses it, it's to, to show favor to somebody purely based on their external appearance. To not consider the worth of a person intrinsically, but to based on something that you see outwardly, you assign value and meaning to a person. Prosopolepsia. Our world struggles with prosopolepsia. But you know, when the world struggles with it, in a sense, what should we expect? I'm not saying we shouldn't fight it. But it is part of this, the, 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 the fallen nature of man. But he's not writing, he's not speaking to the world. He's speaking to the church of the Lord Jesus. And he says, how can you have prosopolepsia? How can you struggle with this disease? How can it be manifest among you? Remember last week I said when, when non-Christian people, unbelievers, people that don't, haven't surrendered to the new nature of Christ, when they sin, they're acting consistent with their nature. But when we as Christians who have received the nature of Christ, when we sin, we are acting inconsistent with our nature. He's saying to them, you are acting inconsistent with the new life that is within you when there is favoritism and discrimination among you. He lifts this up. And he says, you are not living the life that you should be living. 
I don't know how many of you know the concept, the Latin concept of quorum Deo. Quorum Deo means to live in the presence of God. It's to live a life where you understand that every moment of your life, every thought of your heart and mind, every motivation, every intention, every action that you do is done in the presence of God. And it's knowing that that because that is true, it changes the way I live. I live quorum Deo. I live consistent with the belief that I'm living in the presence of God. I think you and I will agree that there's not one single thing we do that we don't do in the presence of God. He's right there. That scripture that Debbie spoke about, Jesus watching this widow. Everything you and I do, every cent we spend is spent in the presence of God. And how does that impact on our lives? How does that change our lives? We can live consistently with that or inconsistently with that. When you live consistently with that knowledge as a Christian, and that's hard for us to do, but that's the motivation and that's what we want to do as believers, then we live a life of integrity, a life of cohesion, a life of congruence, a life where what we believe and what we practice matches with one another in every small detail because we live quorum Deo. But so often we don't live quorum Deo. And then we live a life, a fragmented life, a life of disintegration, marked by inconsistency, disharmony, confusion, conflict, contradiction, and chaos. I want to say that even as a believer, a person that professes to be a Christian, that loves Jesus, if I'm not living quorum Deo, my life can be marked by these terrible words. Disharmony, confusion, conflict, contradiction, and chaos. Because then I'm inconsistent with the new nature of Christ within me. And this is the challenge James puts to, these, to this Jewish, uh, ex-Jewish messianic community. He says, when you are showing favoritism like this, you are living inconsistent. And it is causing chaos. It is bringing the name of Jesus into disrepute. And I think it's worthy for us as the church in the 21st century particularly to take note of this, not because it's a new struggle that we have, but it's because it's been with the church all the time that we do struggle, it seems, with issues of favoritism, discrimination. And it is right that we understand that it is not an issue that we can put aside and say, but other things that we do makes up for it when there's this in our midst, it is causing disrepute for the name of the Lord Jesus. It is causing people to ask legitimate questions. It should bring a different spirit into my heart. Now, he, he, he shows them an example for how, why he says this to them. And as far as I can understand through the research I've done, it, 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 it's mostly believed that this is a real example that he observed in some of these messianic communities. Remember, he's writing to messianic communities that are in different cities in Asia Minor in the Roman Empire, and they are experiencing being impoverished because they are being in the beginnings of, of being discriminated against themselves and in the beginnings of, of being persecuted. Their communities turning against them, ostracizing them, and withholding from them finances and the ability to make money. So they're under pressure. And under that pressure financially, 
He spots certain behavior among them, and he, and he mentions as he says, for example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and other comes into who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, then this, doesn't this discrimination show that you are, your judgment are guided by evil motives? He's saying, literally, this is what I've seen. That when you're in a gathering, and remember the gatherings weren't thousands of people like us generally, they were smaller gatherings, perhaps in a home or perhaps in a synagogue or wherever they were gathering under the name of Jesus, in the, in the power of the gospel. He says, when, I, when you meet in those spaces and I see somebody come in, and it is obvious by their external appearance that they are wealthy, I see you treat that person differently. Then you do your own brothers and sisters, because remember, they were the poor people. They were the ones growing poorer and poorer. They were the ones struggling. Now, in those days, a wealthy person was quite easy to spot, because part of it was their clothes were finer than everybody else's. They could afford fine linen, materials that were processed and soft. And you saw it, or they wore, or they wore nice jewelry. So he says, when, when, when a person like that comes into your midst and you immediately treat them special while you take your own brothers and sisters and you say to them, I mean, just sit over there. We don't, we don't really, this is not about you. He says, then, what are you doing? How can you do that? Now, why does he raise this particularly among them? What is the big deal? I think it goes back to what we spoke about earlier in, in, in one of our previous sessions. You know, where he spoke, where, remember we spoke about where does evil come from? And how in the Old Testament, the, the Jewish Yatzad had this view that evil comes from within human beings that have the possibility to either do good or bad. And the enemy comes and tempts. And I remember I used the, illust, illustra, sorry, the illustration of the, of the fly fisherman that makes the lure, that, that, that casts that lure over us and, and to draw us out and so that we can rise to that and try and say that that's going to feed me. And it's the same language he uses here when he speaks in, in the end here where he says that your judgments are guided by evil motives. He's saying there's desires within you right now that are being stirred. And if, if you allow those desires to be met in the wrong way, then they will lead you into sin. So, so literally what happens here? Is he says, I understand that you as a community is under pressure financially. I understand that you are struggling financially. I understand that you, you're struggling to feed your children and your businesses seems to be like they're failing and, you, and you're losing your clientele and, and your community is turning against you. You're under socioeconomic pressure at the moment. And I understand that you feel that pressure. But be careful that the trial, the pressure that you are under, does not give rise to your evil desires. What is an evil desire? An evil desire is when I try and find a way to, to take care of a legitimate need through an illegitimate way. So he's saying to them, Are you, it's legitimate. Your desire for financial well-being, financial security, to have your needs met, to feed your children, it's legitimate. It's right. And it is that desire that is under threat at the moment because of your socioeconomic situation. 
And now the pressure is on you and you're seeing, I can't fulfill this desire. I don't know how to feed my children. I don't know how to look after my business. I don't know how to make it financially. My financial security is under threat. So that's the trial. And in the midst of the trial, remember I said that your, your, your inner desires can start rising up. And the enemy knows how to tempt. He lures. So he says, now you feel this pressure. And I can understand that in a situation like this, when you're under pressure, a rich person suddenly walks into your meeting. I can understand that you suddenly go, wow, perhaps this is an answer to prayer. Because if this rich person tithes to our community, then perhaps the church leaders can at least use some of the money to help us and to feed us and to look after our needs because that's what the church does. So is it not only right that we just for expediency's sake take the rich person and just make them feel a little bit more comfortable and show them how much we appreciate them so that, so that we can benefit? Can you see the temptation? Very real temptation. Any of us have felt that kind of temptation. He says, but don't give in to that temptation because there's bigger things at stake. And like Debbie spoke this morning, that's why the Bible speaks so much into these spaces. Somebody has said, I don't know, I've heard this say, I think I've heard this say, I didn't check it, but somebody said, up to 49% of the New Testament talks about money. Can I tell you that's not true? Not, I'm not doubting the number. I'm doubting the fact that the New Testament speaks about money. Now you will say to me, hang on, pastor. You must give your money, get your money back for all the studies you've done. Because I can quote you many scriptures where the money talks about, the Bible, the money talks about Bible. The Bible talks about money. How many of you can think of some scriptures right now where you can quote to me when the Bible talks about money? But can I point your attention to the fact that the Bible doesn't talk about money, it talks about our relationship with money. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil, it says the love of money is the root of all evil. Go read every time the scripture talks about money. Now, if you find something to disprove me, then I welcome that, then, then I won't make this public statement again. But as far as I understand, the Bible talks about money because it talks about our relationship with money. Because our relationship with money is so close to our discipleship and our follower, followership of Jesus. So when Jesus was sitting there looking at the offering as they were bringing it in the synagogue that day, and the reason he noticed the, the money that that widow gave the two, two mites is he was not looking at the money, he was looking at the relationship with money. Because our relationship with money is so determinative of who we really are as people. It has such a huge impact on our hopes and our dreams and our expectations, our confidence, our lives, our relationship with money is so big in our lives. And J Jesus is not scared and James is not scared to go right into that and say, you need to check your relationship with money. I know personally for me, it's been one of the great struggles and continues to be one of the struggles of my life is my relationship with money. I grew up in a home, many of you know my story, so forgive me again for telling stories that you may know. If you know the story... Just read something about the Springboks. It makes you feel better or whatever. I don't know. But I grew up in a home where my dad wasn't good with money. So by the time I was 17, roundabout, we lost our home. We lost our car. We lost furniture. We lost a lot because he gambled and had a drinking problem. And they literally, I will remember the day where they literally came and took our stuff away. And where we were, lost our house that was supposed to have been paid off 
and we had to move. Fortunately, my mom could prove that our car was her money, that she paid for it, so eventually we got our car back. But that moment in my life, and I think other events also, but I think that became a marked moment that really complicated my relationship with money. Looking back, I realized that at that point, fear started taking root in my life. The fear of not being able to take care of myself and people around me financially. And, uh, you know, I was at home, so it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too much pressure on me. And I left home and went into the military. My dad died just at the end of my matric year, left us with basically nothing. My mom had to start from scratch, um, you know, had to try and find a way, and she couldn't support me financially, or my brother was still at home. And uh, so I went to the military. Fortunately, the good thing about the military at those days is they took care, took care of all of your needs. They at least gave you three terrible meals a day. They at least gave you a very hard bed to sleep in. They even gave you a gym program. They, you didn't have to own it. You go to a gym. They, they took care of all of your needs. So I, it wasn't much pressure. And during that time, I was able to save a bit of money, and I bought a little car for myself. And, you know, life was okay. I didn't feel the pressure. But then I left the military, and into the last while of the military, I started working at night to save money. I knew I was coming to do the year of your life, and my mom couldn't help me, so I needed to get some pocket money. So I went and took my little car and drove and did waitering and was a, the worst waiter in the world, but somehow I was able to get a thousand rand or, you know, together and save so that I could have for my year of your life here, have money to look after myself. But as it happened, my car broke. And I remember just before I came to Year of Your Life, I had to have my car fixed because I needed that too. And by then I had 900 rand in my account. And guess how much the car cost to get fixed? 900 rand. I stood in front of that ATM and I drew every cent I had out of the bank account. My money for the year ahead that was going to give me a sense of security, a sense of I'm okay. So when I took that money and gave it to the car, I gave more than money to pay for the car. I gave my sense of security. And I was zero in my bank account. So I entered the year of your life with nothing. My mom really couldn't help me. I think she could give me 20 rand every second month, she said. So I entered the year of your life. A friend of mine felt led to give me 1,000 rand. Gave me an envelope with cash, 1,000 rand, said, this is your money for the year. Remember, this is like 1989, so 1,000 rand is a lot of money. She gave me this money. I was so thankful. Whew, I had security again. It was about three months in. The Lord spoke to me one day and said, there's a friend of mine on the program with me. He doesn't have any money. I must give my money to him. I wrestled. I struggled. And eventually, I couldn't shake the feeling. I said, okay, Lord. So I went and counted, guess how much money I had left in the envelope? 900 rand. I took that 900 rand, put it in a different envelope, wrote his name on it, put it under his pillow, and said goodbye to my money. Spent the rest of the year with no money. And it became a consistent process over my life over that time that it seemed like the Lord was consistently committed to getting me to zero. Every time I just felt like I was getting some sense of security, he would bring me back to zero. And eventually, I, I, Natasha and I got married. Now it wasn't just me that I was worried about, and I was worried about her. But quickly that, I realized she's got much greater ability to make money than what I have, so she's going to look after me. So I felt a little bit more secure. I felt, yes, I've got it. You know, it's okay. 
and uh, we ventured into our lives and we didn't have much, but we were in love and everything was fantastic and she could make money. And then I was taken to an area of Warmbath and we led our own training center and suddenly I became not only responsible for the, me or for the two of us, but now I had other people. I had to get enough money in a month to pay salaries, to look to feed students, to do programs and all of that. And the pressure started building. And this internal pressure, this fear, that I only later begin to realize what it was, grew inside of me. This fear of failure. This fear of financial embarrassment. This fear that someday I'm going to become bankrupt also. I'm going to be declared insolvent and I'm going to lose everything. And I'm going to be, look like I'm a failure. And this fear started building inside of me again. And every month... When it came to salary time, we hardly ever had the money and I would have to pray and pray and somehow the Lord was faithful. But during that time, I I discovered or got really learned about this principle of sowing and reaping. So Natasha and I would sow money all the time. You know, the Bible says if you sow, then you will reap 30, 60, 100 fold. And and we sowed a lot of money in terms of, you know, our two little coins that we had. We didn't have much, but we sowed, man. And the Lord was faithful. But we got to a process and a time, particularly in, the, in that development of that little training center, that the financial pressure was real. It looked like it was make or break. Were you going to make it or not? And you know when you're in a situation like that, it starts speaking to all your internal problems. And this fear really started rising up in me. Because now I've got something. I've built a training center, I've got something, I've got staff, I've got students, I've got something to lose, I've got something to be embarrassed about now, if it all goes pear-shaped. And this pressure started building in me, and I must be honest, it, it, it started causing really negative feelings inside of me. And it's at that point that I realized I was actually using the principle of sowing and reaping as a bargaining tool with God. I was actually saying, Lord, look, I'm giving you And it may not be a lot, but it's everything I've got, and you owe me. Any of you ever try to do that with God? The problem is whenever you say you owe me, he just points to the cross and says, paid in full. (laughs) Hey? And it's like he's got no pressure. He says, I've paid. I owe you nothing. Man, but... I, it, it started scratching on the inside of me and I started struggling. And finances were getting worse. It felt again, the Lord was committed to get me to zero. And uh, one day I was really praying about it as I was now starting to get a sense of this fear inside of me. And I remember one day walking and the Lord speaking to me and saying to me, you have a fear of financial failure over your life because of what happened in your home. And the Lord started dealing with that. And one day as I was praying, and Natasha was with this with me, and you know, we were in this wrestle together. One day I was praying, and the Lord asked me this great question. He said, why do I provide for you? And instinctively out of my heart, you know when the Lord asks you a question like that, he's trying to make you see what's in your own heart, not because he doesn't know. Out of my own heart came jumping this thought, it's because I sow that you provide for me. And the Lord said, no, I provide for you because I'm your father. Not because you sow. Like Debbie rightfully said, when I sow, I am displaying my faith. But it's not a bargaining system with God. And I still believe in sowing and reaping. 
but from a different foundation because he has given everything to me. How can I not respond? He's my father. And I'm still walking my journeys. Now that I'm responsible for hundreds of people, millions of rands worth of budgets, I have to deal with those things when we are financially facing some tough times in our own family, as a church, as the churches that I lead. But it is only that understanding of what is my relationship with money that can bring me freedom to be able to do what God's called me to do. And it's the same in your life. And it is this is why James raises this. He brings it front and center. Something that happens, but it could easily be just sort of covered up. He shines the spotlight on it. He brings it front and center and he says, this is a big problem when you do this. Because the reason you do this is you are feeling the financial pressure and the financial pressure is causing the the desires within you to arise. And you are finding illegitimate ways to address that desire. Because can I tell you, in this world, financial struggles and people's relationship with money is one of the main drivers, if not the main driver, for discrimination. It is often the thing that has led to wholesale discrimination. If you scratch at the bottom of it, there's financial questions and struggles that people have. Think of slavery. Why was slavery tolerated so long? Ultimately, people fought to keep slavery alive in our world. Why? Because it was a financial decision. Even when people said, it's not consistent with our ethics and our morals, we can't see how we cannot have it because financially we will collapse. And that's why he brings this in and he says, when you as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ show favoritism, there's something very fundamentally that you are bringing into question in the gospel. He's not just being woke. Do you know what woke is? It's a modern word for for being sensitive to issues of social justice. He's being far more than being woke. He's not just, you know, not saying that, that the Bible doesn't speak about those things and those things aren't important, but he's going for the foundation of it. And he says, when you do this, you are bringing the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You are You are molding it to your motives and instead of letting your motives be changed by the gospel. He carries on. In James 2 verse 5 he says, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God, kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Wow. Wow. Can I read that again? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Is is James really saying that the poor people are closer to God than the rich people? Is he really saying that if you want to get into the kingdom of God, then you've got to be poor? Rich people, forget it. Poor people, you can do it. Is that really what he's saying? Makes me think of Jesus. It said it's how impossible it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
He says it's more difficult, it's more easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that wasn't some gate in Jerusalem. That's literally a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. Hang on. Are we really saying that if you want to be a child of Jesus, you have to be poor? That would be inconsistent with other things. So what's he talking about? I want to go to Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I've left out a word. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I think what James is saying is poor people understand something sometimes better than rich people. And it is this experience that they have had that may position them better in terms of understanding the message of the gospel. And it is this message. Now, man, I would so love to be able to finish at 11 this morning. But I'm not going to get it right. Forgive me. So should I stop now, finish at 11, or leave you? Is it okay? Can I just carry on? Sorry. He says to them, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, and this is the fundamental understanding of the gospel that James builds on here. And this is this. That it is only poor people that can inherit the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit people. It's only people that understand they have nothing to bring that can inherit the kingdom. We live in a world that elevates rich people. Because in our world there's this fundamental idea that because certain people are good at making money, that means that they are good. And it elevates those people. And there's something fundamental that we almost believe that richer people bring more to the world than others. And therefore, they deserve a little bit more. They are, in a sense, better. And don't tell me we don't do that. We do it with famous people. We do it, we, we sort of say there's certain people. And I'll apply it for you now. Just stay with me. But the message of the gospel is this. You have nothing to bring. Remember, the, the sin in the garden was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The revelation of the gospel, when we respond to it, we not only repent from our sin, we also repent from our reliance on our own goodness. We also repent on the idea that I have something to give. I have something that I bring to the Lord and that gives me, he gives me the inside track that makes it possible that Jesus can forgive me. I must bring something. But the message of the gospel is you have nothing to offer. That's why Jesus tells this amazing parable in Luke 18, verse 9 to 14. Let me read it for you in Luke 18, verse 9. Then Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. We can say goodness in our language and scorned everyone else. Right across this world, whether it's Christian, religious people, People from other religions, non-believing people, seculars, atheists, everybody puts confidence in their own goodness. Everybody tries to prove I've got some good in me. Look at me, I've, I've got a good person. Whether it is giving money to the SPCA or giving money to the Bible Society or whether it's, it's giving time to volunteer for the homeless or, or, you know, we all want to believe that I'm good. I've got some good in me. I bring some good. We all like that. We all build confidence in, and, and sometimes our confidence is I'm not that good, but at least I'm not that bad. 
And we're thankful for the despots and the, and the terrible people of the world that have lived, the, the people that have done the most heinous crimes, because at least I can say I'm not like them. And I have comparative goodness. They may be all bad, but I'm not all bad. We all love to do that. You don't have to be religious. You can be an atheist. You still do it. Everybody does it. That's why Jesus tells the story to people that had confidence in their own goodness and scorned everybody else, that looked superior to everybody else, saying, look at me, I do more good. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The one had good and the other one was bad. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. Thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Compared to others, I am good. I'm on the scale this side. Cheaters, sinners, adulteries, I'm certainly adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. He was using his good resume to say, look at this, Lord. If I'm to inherit your kingdom, at least I brought something to the party with me. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. He didn't hold up his good. He said, all I am. Compared to how good you are, Lord, I've got nothing good to offer. Imagine if we came, each of us today, and we wanted access to the Lord Jesus. We wanted to be with Him. So we came, and each of us, we brought the best we could come to. And, we, and, and perhaps it's your time that you use for good things, or you're a good parent, a good mother. You're a, you're a good citizen of South Africa. You're a, you're a person that, that does so much good for others. You're a, everybody that knows you will say, oh, you're such a good person. Imagine if you, if you could muster all of that goodness that you have and then come and stand before the Lord Jesus and say, yeah, Lord Jesus, I think I, I deserve some of your attention and your time because look at my good. Don't give your time and attention to that guy. He's bad. I, you, I deserve that you focus on me for a bit. And then the Lord says, oh, thank you so much for the good that you've done. Based on the good that you've done, won't you come and sit with me and in, in, there's a special place for you. This guy, he's done a little bit of good, and based on that, I'll let him come and spend time with me. But, you know, he's going to sit on the floor. But you're going to sit on a better chair because of the good you've done. Is that the gospel? Is that what the Lord Jesus has come to do for us? No. He's come with this simple message that we deserve nothing, but he has come to give us mercy. I deserve eternal judgment. I deserve eternal punishment. I deserve to go to hell. I deserve to be separated from Him. Because when it comes to righteousness on God's standard, it's all or nothing. There's no gradient of righteousness. There's no pathway of righteousness before you get to the cross. There's nothing that I can bring that makes me qualify for His mercy more than somebody else. We are equally empty and poor. Blessed are the poor. It's so fantastic. 
this week to hear the testimony, and hopefully it's all true and it's all fantastic, of somebody like Kanye West coming to the Lord Jesus and he's now a Christian. But yeah, it's fantastic, it really is. I'm a little bit more excited about the news that I've read now a couple of times, and I hope it's true that Sir Anthony Hopkins has become a Christian. He was an atheist, alcoholic, turned to the Lord Jesus in an AA meeting. That means more to me than Kanye West, just because he means more to me. I've, you know, I just appreciate. That's just personal, you know, whatever. But can I tell you this? Sir Anthony Hopkins or Kanye West cannot come and stand before the Lord Jesus and say, aren't you glad I've now come to the kingdom? Because I've got to follow a list of a million, two million, three, four, five, ten, a billion people that watch me. And if I come to the kingdom, I'm bringing all of this with me. You should be glad, Lord Jesus, I'm coming into your kingdom. I've got money, Lord. I can fund kingdom projects. Do you know that Kanye West doesn't bring anything more to the kingdom of God than you did? In terms of salvation. That if he does not come to the Lord and say, I am poor, I have nothing to offer you, Lord, he cannot inherit salvation. Salvation comes to the poor. And James links it here where he says the, the materially poor may understand this, and this is how I understand it, and I'm still studying this and may come to better understanding, but just for now, just give me this space to say the financially poor understand they perhaps sometimes a little bit more understanding of their poverty. While people that have wealth are used to the idea that they mean something and they can contribute and they can add and they can make the world better and they can make life better for themselves and for others. And therefore it may be harder for them to accept that they are poor. But the only way we come to the Lord is through poverty. And what defines our poverty is what he carries on. And I'm worship team, you guys can come on stage. Verse 8 to 10, he says, Yes, indeed, it is good when you say, when you obey the royal laws found in the Scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who breaks all of God's laws. Again, he's saying this. In, the, in, in God's standards, it's all or nothing. You can't be 50% good. There's no grading that happens before Jesus. I am completely lost. And by the blood of Jesus that gets imparted to my life and the righteousness of Christ that, that I receive, that is His righteousness that gets given to me because of my faith in Him, I become 100% righteousness. His righteousness. There's no in-between. And when we're comfortable with that, then we can Show mercy to others. And then we have no foundation to discriminate anymore. Because then I can look at any person and say, you are no worse than that I was before I met Jesus. And you are no better than I was before I met Jesus. It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter how many tattoos you have. It doesn't matter how many needle marks are in your arms. It doesn't matter what your lifestyle is. It doesn't matter what car you drive or don't drive. It, none of that matters. I, can, I cannot look at that I can only look at you are made in the image of God and He loves you. And because of that, He has extended mercy. And if we act in any way different than that, we are breaking down the gospel. It's a huge challenge for us. It was a huge challenge for this messianic community that was struggling financially. 
But they had to understand that it is better for them to struggle in poverty than to compromise the gospel. Because the gospel is the hope of the world for salvation. And it needs a community that lives for it, that is committed to it. So the title of today's message is Arise, Shine, or You Can Shine Because You Are Free. You and I can be free, not based on what is in my bank account, but based on what I know Christ has done for me. That I have been poor, but I have been made rich. And the wealth that I have in Him. God provides for us, and I believe in that, and our family's testimonies, God provides for us. That's His grace. That's fantastic. But I have to remind myself every so often, even with everything that I've been able to do for the kingdom, that none of that gives me entrance. Every time I come to Him, I come in poverty. And I say, thank you, Jesus, for your blood that cleansed me. Are you poor this morning? Can you be free in your poverty? Because if you're free in poverty, then you can be free in righteousness. In the sense of, Lord, it's nothing that I bring. So can I ask you to stand with me? I want to thank you this morning. I've received and we've received as a church so many comments and messages from people here, people online, people that are watching the services, that are talking about what it's meaning for them. Can I ask that if you have a story to tell us, we would love to be able to share some stories of just real life impact that the messages are having and our times of worship are having for people. So there's an email address, talk to us at hatfield.co.za. There it's on the screen. Talk to us at hatfield.co. If you've got a story, just an encouragement, just send it to us. It would be great. I don't feel comfortable to tell other people's stories unless you give me permission. There's many people that I know we've prayed for and they've seen answers to prayer, but unless you give us me permission, I'm not going to tell your story. But it'd be great if you can share with us. But can we pray together this morning? Can I venture to say as one of the spiritual leaders in this community and pastor that the fact that through the worship the Lord spoke and Debbie, we didn't coordinate this, we didn't understand this together. What she spoke about during the offering and also what happened during the worship that God is calling this to attention. It's an important thing for us. But he's not speaking to us as a church first of all, he's speaking to each of us individually. What is your relationship with money like? Where's your confidence lie? Do you understand your poverty? So that you can understand your blessing. You can't understand your blessing if you don't first understand your poverty. Lord Jesus, I pray that by your spirit right now, it is for freedom that Christ has come to set us free. Freedom from this world and its constraints in terms of who we are and our value and our destinies and our purposes, Father. I thank you that you see every person as a person knitted together in their mother's womb, that you love each of us. Not because of any other reason that because you made us. 
And what we have and what we don't have and what we do and what we don't do ultimately at this point in time is not what you focused on. You focus on us, Lord. Lord, I want to repent of my own pride, my own need to feel good, to feel like I deserve something, to feel like I have a contribution, to feel like I matter. And those are not illegitimate feelings, Lord. I believe you put those desires in me. But forgive me for wanting to meet those needs and those desires in illegitimate ways. For having a relationship with money, that's not about the way that you want me to relate to money. And material things. And what others think of me. Forgive me, Lord. This morning I recognize that I am poor. I'm poor. I'm poor, Lord. I'm desperately poor. I'm in poverty. I'm poor of spirit, Lord. Without you, Lord Jesus. I don't want you to top up my lack of goodness. I want you to give me your goodness. Therefore, like Paul, I say, I consider it all rubbish. Every good thing I say, it's worth nothing compared to the riches of your grace and your glory. Come, Holy Spirit. Right now, may the Spirit of God just pour out His love upon you. If you've never confessed to the Lord Jesus that you are poor, if you've never given Him your life, if you've never said, Lord, I can't do this life without you, I need you, Jesus, then I'm going to ask you to come to the front, to my right-hand side. Our pastors, Pastor Ian, is going to meet with you, and they're going to help you to pray and to Inherit the kingdom of God through this prayer. If you need prayer in any other way, come forward. Let us pray with you. Our team will be here. They will pray with you. Because God is good. He is merciful. And I want to pray as I end that we will, in our nation, show mercy. That we will recognize that there's no person in this nation, there's no people group that deserves any more than another. We all need God's mercy. So Lord, we come before you today and we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the power of the gospel. And I pray that every person that heard this message today will not, that it would find the right place in their hearts and that they would understand the love that is in this message. Your great mercy for us. And we pray for our nation. Let us not divide according to human understanding and pride. Let us not think that some deserve more than others. But let us come in your mercy. And help us, Lord, to deal with discrimination and favoritism. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are people going to get baptized in the functions hall. If you want to join them, please do so. Please join us in the front for prayer. May the Lord bless you. May He go with you during this week. And may you live a life of Coram Deo in the presence of our Lord and Savior. Amen.